Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. We're in Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Josh. For those of you that don't know me or haven't met me yet, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm not usually up here, but welcome if this is your first time. We're really glad that you're here. And I have a question for you. Have you ever listened to a song a million times before actually understanding what the song is about? I know I have. For, for years and years, I thought uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA, you know that song? That's how it goes, Born in the, I think, over and over again. Um, I just thought it was like a great 4th of July, barbecue, patriotic, fireworks type song about, you know, being like, born in the USA, and it, it wasn't until much later I found out it's actually like this, this very, you know, it's a Vietnam protest song about a Vietnam vet who falls on hard times after he's returning home from the war, and um, it kind of changes the way that you, you think about it. You know, another nice sounding song that maybe um, a, a lot of people may not understand the actual meaning of is uh, that John Lennon song, Imagine. You know, imagine all the people living life in peace. It sounds great. And John Lennon himself, though, said about the song, he goes, it's virtually the communist manifesto. (laughs) That's what he said. Because it's sugar-coated, it's accepted. And now I understand what you have to do. Put a political message across with a little honey, right? That's what he said about the song. Kind of makes you hear the song in a whole new light. One more maybe a little bit more recent. I, I know it was, it was my own graduation song, which I graduated from, from actually this school, which is a little weird. But um, uh, it's a Green Day song. It's played at like every graduation, every dance, weddings, funerals, soundtracks to um, picture slideshows, just about everyone you've seen, you know? It's, it's that song. It's something unpredictable, but in the end, it's right. I hope you have the time of your life. I mean, it's very sentimental. But the artist that wrote that song actually said, uh, it's, it's actually about an ex-girlfriend who moved to Ecuador. In the song, I tried to be level-headed about her leaving, even though I was completely upset. So I named it Good Riddance just to express my anger. So it's this angry breakup song. And I think we could go on and on about songs that we've listened to over and over again and never knew what the actual meaning was behind the song. This Psalm 110 this morning is actually one of those songs, at least for God's people, because for thousands of years, this is a a psalm that was written by King David around 1,000 BC. And so for about 1,000 years, God's people would have sung this song without understanding who 
the psalm is exactly about. They would have known a little bit that this would have been God's promised king through David's line, but they would have never known the person of Jesus that's talked about in this psalm. And that's what's so amazing about it. It goes from relative obscurity. It's a small psalm. It's only uh, seven verses, but it goes to relative obscurity in Hebrew writings to being the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Over, I think it's over like 17 times it's quoted in the New Testament. And for the past few weeks, we've been going through the psalms, and we've looked at some of our favorite psalms. Um, so Psalm 32 and 55 and 33 and 40 and Psalm 119 and Psalm 34 last week. And most of these psalms have kind of focused on our own happiness or fears, our anxieties, kind of the situations that we find ourselves in. Um, you know, Psalm 40, uh, pulling us out, God, God pulling us out of the miry clay. And that's fine. That's what the Psalms are for. Calvin wrote about the Psalms. He said it's the, the Psalms is an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as a mirror. And that's been good. We've, we've seen that. We've been able to go to the Psalms. A lot of us do go to the Psalms in times of trouble. And yet sometimes I think we can become a little bit self-focused in these Psalms. We can become a little bit self-focused and we forget that the Psalms, not only the Psalms, but the whole entire Bible is not primarily about us and what we can do or what we should do, but all of Scripture is about God and what He has done, is doing, and what He will do in the future. Amen? Amen. And so this psalm centers on that. And that's what I love about this psalm. And we really need to hear this right now. Um, Right now, especially, you know, some of us are feeling like the world is out of control. And it is. I mean, honestly, politically, globally, um, there's news of, you know, just this last week of war. And for some of us, our, our personal lives are kind of out of control, kind of spinning out of control. There's fear, anxiety, there are health issues, finances, distrust in in relationships. There's sorrow and and loss. Um, It's just all around fatigue. Some of us are just tired. So we don't just need to know what we can do with, with all these fears, anxieties, relationships, confusion, all of this. We need to know what God can do, what he is doing. We need to know that Um, There is a king, his name is Jesus, and he is in control. Amen? And so Psalm 10, it's a short psalm, um, but it reminds us of two great truths. It reminds us that Jesus is the great and promised king, and that Jesus is our faithful and sympathetic priest. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, um, that Jesus is the promised, incarnate, ruling, reigning, conquering king, and he's also... Secondly, the incarnate, eternal, sacrificing, and interceding priest. So that's what we're going to look at. Before we begin, I want to pray, and I I not only want to pray for our time in the Word, but I do want to pray for our brothers and sisters that are in Ukraine. I was just looking at this morning a statement from the Ukrainian Evangelical Reform Seminary, and this is what they said. They said, We confess the real and unlimited power of God over all countries and continents, as well as over all kings and rulers. Therefore, nothing in all creation can interfere 
with the fulfillment of the good and perfect will of God. We together, with the first Christians, affirm Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. Caesar's not Lord. We express solidarity with the people of Ukraine. We share the pain of those who have already lost their loved ones. We pray that all of the aggressor's plans would be thwarted and put to shame. We call on all people of goodwill around the world to resist lies and hatred of the aggressor. We call on everyone to petition for a cessation of um, hostilities. We ask you to pray for peace for the people of Ukraine and for courage and wisdom for Christian churches so that they can continue to serve those in need. We pray for our authorities and we put our hope in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who, who is and remains our refuge and our fortress even in time of war. Let me pray. Father, we do um, acknowledge that you uh, are King of Kings and Lord of Lords and that nothing is out of your control, and yet um, when, when things seem out of control, um, we, we look to you. We look to you as a refuge, um, as a fortress. We just pray for our brothers and sisters uh, in Ukraine. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, Lord, who are just experiencing uh, pain and death, sickness, sorrow, and we know that you are uh, in control. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's go ahead and look at Psalm 110. And so, uh, please, if you, have, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up. We're going to be just kind of looking at this passage a lot, really digging in. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just pull your phone out. Um, it's really good to look at the overall structure of this passage you can see, or, or of this psalm. You can see the whole structure there. And one of the great things about it, what, one of the really kind of interesting things to see, and this is a great tool because this is all throughout Scripture. So as you're doing your reading on your own, Psalm 110 is what, what's called a, a chiasm. It's got a chiastic structure. Basically, you can think of it as a sandwich. And so ancient writers used to do this all the time. So what they would do is they would start with an idea. Um, so idea one and then they would go to idea two, kind of in the, in the middle, and then idea one again. So they would repeat it again. So you're going kind of towards an idea and back away from an idea in a way that's parallel. You can kind of think of it as, as a sandwich again. And so when you look at Psalm 110, we get, a, we get the bread would be verses one through three. They're about Jesus as king. Then in the middle is verse four, specifically talking about Jesus being a priest forever. And then we get verses 5 through 7, which mirror verses 1 through 3, and they show that Jesus is a king again, right? So that's repeated. And so we're going to look at those two things. We're going to look at kind of the bread first, and then we're going to end with the meat in the middle uh, of that sandwich. Um, and so the first, our first point here is that Jesus is the promised ruling, reigning, and conquering king. So if you look at verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so notice there are actually two lords in verse 1. And so it's really important that we figure out, okay, who is being talked about here? So that the Hebrew of that, that first line, it literally reads, The oracle of Yahweh to my Lord, like lowercase Lord. 
And so an oracle is just a term for, for a prophecy. So this is a prophecy from Yahweh, that personal name for the Hebrew God, to some other Lord. So in your Bible, there's probably the first Lord is probably in all caps, and then the second Lord is capitalized, but then it's uh, lowercase letters. So we know that the capitalized Lord is Yahweh, the Hebrew God, but who is that other Lord? Who is that Lord with those lowercase letters? So that's a great question. So at this point, we might, like I would do, I would look down at my study book notes in my Bible, right? And I'd be like, okay, what, what, what exactly is going on here? Or you could open up a commentary, you know, a commentary that would, you know, kind of un- unpack this for you. And they're really helpful. But it's important to remember just kind of, again, general Bible study, good etiquette, I guess. All that stuff, all those notes in the lower part of your Bible is not holy and inspired. Those commentaries aren't holy and inspired like the Word of God is. What's really cool is sometimes the Bible itself can be its best commentary and it's holy and inspired. And so remember I mentioned this psalm is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. And so um, we have a commentary on Psalm 110 We have lots of commentary on Psalm 110 that is holy and inspired, and some of it is actually from the mouth of Jesus himself, which is really cool. So you can put your finger in your Bible and go ahead and turn to Matthew 22. I'll give you a second to get there. Matthew 22, Jesus is actually going to preach on Psalm 110, which is very helpful and also very humbling because... I'm definitely not going to do as good of a job preaching on this as, as Jesus himself. But you can see in Matthew 22, verse 41, it says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Love it, right? So here Jesus is actually pointing to himself as the promised son of David, and yet David himself calls Jesus Lord, right? There's another place where we can look, look for commentary on, on this passage that's really good, and it is in Acts 2. So it's Peter's sermon in Acts 2, and if you want to turn there, it's Acts 2, verse 29. I know there's a lot of turning this morning, that's okay. If not, I'll just read it. It says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence, this is Peter preaching uh, at Pentecost, actually. It says, brothers, I may uh, say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
And that's in another psalm. Verse 32, that this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That's our psalm, right? Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So it's confirmed, right? It's clear from our commentaries. Psalm 110 is a prophecy. It's God the Father speaking through David about a thousand years before Jesus was born about Jesus, God the Son being raised and exalted as a ruling, reigning, and conquering king. Right? And so this is what our psalm is about. You know, normally, a lot of times we'll save, we'll save it for the end and, you know, we'll, we'll uh, preach through a passage and then surprise, it's all about Jesus. I'm just telling you up front this morning, our passage is all about Jesus. It's all about him. And so we're first going to look at Jesus as the ruling king. So look at verses 1 and 2 again in Psalm 110. We're back in Psalm 110. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So when God says, sit at my right hand, he is saying that Jesus has the same authority uh, that comes from God himself. So the right hand, you know, it's, Jesus is God's right-hand man. He's ruling with the same weight and authority. When he says he'll make your enemies your footstool, you know, he's alluding to a lot of things. Actually, if you look at this, this phrase appears over and over again with uh, kings um, conquering and, you know, kind of crushing or making their enemies, stomping on their enemies especially. But the thing that we can look back to, and he's alluding to here, that David's alluding to here in Psalm 110, is that Genesis 3 promise. You remember that one? Where it says that there would be a seed of the woman, that there would be one day somebody born from Eve's line that would be able to crush the head of the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve. And Jesus comes to fulfill that. He comes to be the one to, to crush not just his enemies, but all enemies, and even, you know, that serpent who's behind all, all enemies. And then this mighty scepter, um, again, it it's, goes back to, all the way back to Genesis. It's a promise in Genesis that the scepter would not depart from Judah, that someone from the line of Judah would be ruling and reigning, and that's in Genesis 49.10. And so the rule of Jesus takes place in the midst of his enemies as well. And so Putting all that together, we see that Jesus' reign is from God. It's upheld by God. It's absolutely authoritative, even in the midst of enemies, even when enemies surround. And so I think the question for us at this point is, do we, do you and I, see Jesus' commands as uh, the, the commands of a king, or do we kind of see them as maybe the suggestions of a wise sage you know is he really in your mind when and we're going to look at some of the, these commands that come from king jesus 
are they just kind of like, yeah, it's good advice, or are, they, are these commands that are coming from the king of all reality? So let's just look kind of, I just want to run through some of these things that Jesus has said, that Jesus has commanded. And there's a lot of them. I'm, we're probably not even going to make it out of, of the Sermon on the Mount. But he says in Matthew 4, kind of starting with Matthew 4, and then we'll kind of run through real quick. Um, he says, repent and follow me. He says to rejoice in suffering in Matthew 5. He says, let your light shine before men. He says in Matthew 5 also, be reconciled to your brother before bringing a gift of worship. He says in Matthew 5, figuratively gouge out your own eye and cut off your hand if it causes you to lust. He says in Matthew 5, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He says in Matthew 5, go the extra mile for your your enemies. Walk with them that extra mile. He says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He says to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He says to pray fast and give in secret so nobody sees how spiritual you are. He says to seek first the kingdom of God. He says to don't hypocritically judge others. He says to ask, seek, and knock. He, He says to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He says to choose the narrow way which leads to life. He says to watch out for false prophets. He says to pray for missionaries for the harvest. He says to be wise, fear not, listen to God's voice, take his yoke, honor your father and mother. He says to deny yourself. He says to forgive as you have been forgiven. And the list goes on and on. Again, these are not kind of just some suggestions for wise living. These are commands from the Lord of all existence and reality. And I think the question for us is, are we viewing those as such? I'm not even asking, how are you doing? (laughs) Because I know that answer. I'm just asking, are we looking at those as those commands coming from a king who rules and reigns with all the authority of God? So Jesus is a ruling king. He's also a leading king. He's also... He's not just going to rule from afar, but he is going to lead, lead us there. So look at verse 3. I love this. He says, look at verse 3. It says, your people, and again, this is God the Father talking to Jesus the King through David. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The second part of that verse can be a little bit difficult to to translate and to interpret. Um, I think Calvin sums it up really um, well when he says this. He says, David extols God's favor in increasing the number of Christ's people whom he calls the dew of your youth. As innumerable dew drops cover the earth, such a community will rise from Christ's womb of the morning, right? So, So as... Christ brings all of these people, all of these little dewdrops, kind of as, as they form in the morning. That's how God's people will uh, be numbered, and then also offer themselves freely on the day of your of your power. And so, we see here in this in this passage that Jesus the King will lead an innumerable uh, number of holy people that will freely offer themselves to Him freely offer. I love that phrase. Amen. So it does beg the question for us, though, 
What are we? What are you right now? What are you freely offering yourself to these days? And I remember when I first started learning how to share my faith in, in college, I was involved in this campus ministry, and we would use this little booklet called uh, The Four Spiritual Laws. And I know some people argue about whether it's a, a good tool for sharing your faith or not. Better than nothing. <laughs> it's better than not doing it, right? And so th- there was a part in there um, that I remember. There's a page that had two pictures. And one was titled The Self-Directed Life, and I had this circle, and then I had a, th- a throne in the middle of the circle, and it's like a king's throne, and it was, there was a big S on it that represented yourself, and around the throne were all these like scattered dots, and it, they represented interests in life directed by self, resulting in discord and frustration, a lot of chaos. And there was a cross representing Christ. It was outside the circle. It was kind of representing outside the life. And then the other picture was the Christ-directed life, right? And it was a circle, and it still had the same throne in the middle, but instead of the S on the throne, there was a cross representing Christ on the throne. The S was like at the foot of the throne, and all of those little dots that were all chaotic and, and all around were all now kind of neatly arranged and pointed towards Christ as the center. You know, I, I remember asking, you know, you would, you would kind of walk through the gospel and you'd be like, hey, which circle kind of represents your life? And everybody's like, the chaotic one, the crazy one. And then you're like, well, which one would you like to have represent your life? And they're like, obviously, I would love for Christ to be on the throne directing everything in my life and I am submitting myself to him. But that's not always the case, right? And, and that's what I want to ask us. What are we freely offering ourselves to these days? Or who or what is on your throne kind of taking the place of where Christ should be? So if we picture life kind of like a snow globe, the last two years, I think, for all of us have like really shaken up that snow globe. And now we're starting to see some of those flakes settle and, and I think now we're, we're kind of finding out, like, what has been on the throne of my life for a long time? What has taken the place as king of my life? And what am I putting all of my energy into these days? And I just thought of a few, and maybe these will, maybe you can relate to some of these. I think over, over the last few years, some of us have found that our, our families have taken the place as that king on the throne of our lives. So, you know, when our kids or our spouses sit on that throne and then everything in life is kind of directed towards them, right? It's a lot of pressure to put on them, right? If they take the place in your throne, you'll either be ruined when they let you down or you'll end up ruining them with all these expectations from them that that really only Christ can give, right? So some of us, you know, our, our families have become king. For some of us, Maybe politics has become king. Sometimes we confuse Christianity with American politics, and we end up looking to politicians as either saviors or satans, right? Little s saviors or little s satans, and they're neither. And they don't deserve you to offer yourselves freely to them, right? They don't deserve that. We don't need to endlessly defend someone or demonize them. They don't deserve that much attention. They don't deserve to be in that place on your throne. Some of us put financial success or comfort as king on that throne, right? And I mean, 
We know that that's, <laughs> we know that that's not going to work. First Timothy 6 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, right? Some of us have put, you know, like beauty or physical fitness on the throne of our, our lives, right? Put that up as king. Actually, actually, never, never mind. That doesn't seem like, that doesn't seem like it's, it's too big of an issue um, for you. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, no, no, actually, I turned, um, sorry, I had to lighten it. It was getting a little heavy. Uh, no, I turned, I turned 40 this last week, and I could use some, um, definitely some, some Christ-exalting uh, fitness, right? <laughs> Not to make a king, but, but yeah. Yeah, no, um, I think some of us do. Some of us put uh, careers, aspirations. A career is a very cruel master, right? It requires so much of you and gives you so little in return. And then when you make it to the top of wherever you're, you're aspiring to make it, you find out it's not all that great, and in fact, you know, it can be quite lonely. Sometimes your personal reputation is your king. So giving, just giving the appearance um, that everything, you have everything together, it's exhausting, right? And it also prevents you from asking for things like prayer or help or even forgiveness. You know, sometimes we need ask for forgiveness. Some of us have some kind of secret sin in that place, in that throne, and it controls our lives, and we know that it's killing us. You've been freely offering yourselves to this sin, and it's, you know it's killing you. You know deep down it's killing you. So this is it. Whatever it is, today is the day. That needs to be dethroned. Amen? We need to pull that down, and King Jesus must take his rightful place. I'd love to pray with you if that's the case, if you, if you feel that conviction even right now. So Jesus is, is this ruling, leading, reigning king. He's also a conquering king. If you skip down to verse 5, verses 5 through 7, says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. This is a picture of a conquering king. This is actually somewhat difficult for us to read. It's difficult to imagine Jesus, you know, even we we got some new children's Bibles this morning, put them in children's ministry, and they have pictures in them. And Gabe came up, I don't know if Gabe's in here right now, I think he's in children's, he came up and he goes, I think... The Bibles have like white Mormon Jesus in there. And I was like, ah, I didn't, I didn't look that closely. But, you know, it's, it's this, we have this weird picture of Jesus with, you know, long flowy hair and he's very, you know, very European looking, Dutch maybe, I don't know. And, and it's hard to imagine this picture of Jesus as this conquering king. When you look a, a little bit deeper actually at the Hebrew, and some of your Bibles say this, they'll have a little note in verse 8, where it says, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses, right? That's what it says in the Hebrew. But then it says, he will shatter chiefs. A lot of the translations say he will shatter heads. It's even more graphic there than we initially even can see in, in a lot of our Bibles. But these verses do, they remind us of the reality of evil and the reality of the rebellion of man. And the consequences of that 
reality. And I think, uh, I think a good question, a good honest question is, how can Jesus tell us to love our enemies and then talk about how he himself crushes them? He will crush them. A couple of things we can say about this. Uh, again, evil is real and it must be punished. And God is the author of life. And when his creatures rebel against the one who created them and destroy each other with all sorts of forms of evil, they deserve to suffer God's wrath. And at the same time, though, we do not need to be instruments of executing God's judgment or wrath, right? When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, we really love them, right? And we allow God to judge justly. It reminds me of 1 Peter 2. 21 in it says for this you have been called because christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly any evil that you suffer will be dealt with amen and any evil that you suffer will be judged. And that is great news to those who are suffering real evil and real injustice in this life. Amen? And so Psalm 110 has shown us that, that Jesus is the ruling, reigning, and conquering king. But if we just stopped here, we would be left with just bread and no meat, which sounds like the worst way to eat a sandwich, right? So remember, the, the Psalm 110, the way it's set up, it's this, it's this chiastic sandwich. And so the meat is in the middle. And so there's one verse that the first verses of the Psalm are pointing towards, and then the last verses are pointing back, back to. And it's verse 4. Take a look at verse 4. It says, The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the meat of this passage is that King Jesus is also this eternal saving, sacrificing, and interceding priest. We actually have to unpack this a little bit because there's a few thousand years of Israelite history behind this verse. So Melchizedek the only other time he shows up in the Old Testament is here and in Genesis 14. And in Genesis 14, he shows up way before the law. So way before priestly duties were explained in the law, way before the temple. So there's no temple, there's no law. He's this mysterious king of Salem, um, which means peace. It might be connected to the, the word Jerusalem. There's a mystery there. There's a lot of mystery there. But he's this king priest who shows up in Genesis 14. He brings Abram some bread and some wine, and he blesses him. And then he's gone. He just mysteriously disappears. And so the only other time, the next time he shows up in the Old Testament, and I had to double check because I thought, oh, surely it's got it's to show up. He's got to show up somewhere again or be talked about. No, the only other time is in Psalm 110. Psalm 110, 4. Yeah, I know. It's, it's surprising. You know, it, there's, there's a lot of mystery here. Some Christians think he's an Old Testament appearance of God called a theophany. I don't know if there's quite enough to say that that's true or not. 
And then in the Old Testament, the other thing that's really interesting is God didn't allow king to, kings to be priests, right? King Isaiah tried this and got leprosy. It was really bad. And then he, he got leprosy, and then it says he just had leprosy till he died. And so Psalm 110 points to Jesus as this true king, but also priest, to whom Melchizedek was just a type. He was like pointing forward to it. And again, I love this psalm because all the commentary on this psalm is actually in the Bible itself. It's in the New Testament. There's an extended commentary on Melchizedek and how he is a picture of Christ in Hebrews 5. And so I want to read a couple of these passages. It's a little bit longer, but it's perfect commentary for what we're looking at in, in Psalm 110.4. So just listen. Just listen to this. You can turn to Hebrews 5 if you want. You know, you got your, there's no rules. Here. You know, you got your Bibles. You can turn there if you want. But just listen. Listen carefully to this. This is going to explain how Christ fulfills this, this priesthood that Melchizedek just pointed to. So Hebrews 5.5 5 says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is God the Father talking to God the Son, right? In the days of his flesh, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then if we jump to Hebrews 7, and this is verse 21, so maybe a few pages over. Hebrews 7, 21, he says, But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Right? That's verse 4. That's Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the Lord appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever.
I love that. I know it's a lot, but did you get that? So King Jesus is also this priest who is the eternal son of God, who in Hebrews 5, 6 says he lives a perfect life of tears and prayers and obedience to save you. It says in, in chapter 7, he brings this eternal covenant of salvation between God and man to save you. And in chapter 7, verse 25, it says he lives to make intercession for us. So this means he is a priest right now, and he is continually right now praying to God for you. He is coming before God as it's his priestly work, it's his priestly duty. He's the priest king who not only does he not only does he pray for you, but he offered himself for you for every sin you've committed, for every sin you will commit. And this is important to hear. Because I, I know for a fact that many of you come from churches that are, are faithful to preach the first point of this message, right? They're very faithful to preach Jesus is king. And I know even as we were going through some of that, there's a good, healthy amount of conviction. But we can't leave you there. We can't leave you feeling the conviction of not living up to the commands of a king without also reminding you that this Jesus is also this sacrificing, interceding, saving priest who goes and intercedes on your behalf when you fall short of him, right? I know that some of you have been burnt out and hurt by giving your lives of service to churches that week after week preach what this Oxford theologian Alistair McGrath calls this is what he says. He says, they preach some form of legalism, which emphasizes that we must prove that we are Christians by an empirical test of discipleship, and then leaves us high and dry when we discover that we can't on account of sin. They preach Christ as king, but they forget about Christ as priest, right? And this can lead to an endless cycle of, of passionate service, sin and failure, then questioning God's goodness, then questioning your own faith or salvation, then passionate service, then sin and failure, then wash, rinse, repeat, right? Wash, rinse, repeat. It's a cycle. And Psalm 10, this, this passage invites you to step out of that cycle, fix your gaze on this priest who offers himself as a sacrifice for your sin of failing to honor him as king. Right? That is the meat of Psalm 110. That's the meat of this passage. And only when you see the great love of, of this Jesus, the priest, who lived a life of tears and prayers, died to save you from your sins, and lives continually to pray for you now, will you be able to offer yourselves freely in joyful submission to Jesus the King who rules, reigns, and conquers. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we just thank you for this psalm. We thank you for allowing us to hear these words um, that you spoke to your son, Jesus. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We're thankful that we uh, not only have a king who rules and reigns and is in control, but we can know Jesus as a priest 
who sacrifices for us and who continually offers prayers on our behalf. Father, I pray that you would allow us to walk in joyful obedience to these commands of this king, knowing that we also have a savior who sympathizes um, with our weaknesses, a great high priest who is living to make intercession for us. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.